Paul, thank you for joining me on the Career Deconstructed podcast. It's virtually, but it, it, it's great to see you here. Now, um, I want to ask you some, some questions about some of your work. And you, you're looking at, in part, several cultural constructs to illustrate deeply rooted Korean ethos. And, and you draw some of these out. You talk about Chemyeon and Han and Jong. But before we look at some of these specific cultural constructs, I'd like to ask you more broadly, Paul, about cultural constructs in general. Does this imply something innate? Does it imply uh, a, a risk of generalizing or reinforcing stereotypes? Now, that's not what I'm suggesting that you're doing in your work. But if we say that Korean people have Han and British people are very polite and, and this, I, I, I find myself stepping into these conversations knowing that part of it is real, but also with a bit of trepidation because of how they're perceived. So perhaps how do you unpack these ideas? How do you explain these cultural constructs? Yes, and a very good question, David. And um, I'll approach the question speaking as a psychologist. Uh, in the field of psychology, um, we study culture as a process that is learned, right? It's something that um, is internal and external, so values and behaviors, but also things that are shared among a group of people and passed down from one generation to another. And so that idea of sharing among a group of people and passed down from one generation to another implies that there is a socialization process, right? There is a learning that occurs. And in that sense, I would say that cultural constructs, right, which um, can include both values, but also things that you act upon, right? So some of the mm -hmm. behaviors that we'll talk about later um, are definitely things that are learned through these socialization processes. Um, I'll tell you a quick story because I like telling stories. Uh, yeah. My students will attest to that. Um, my wife, who is Korean American, but has you know, sort of internalize these values. Um, she would, when when my daughter was a toddler, she would, you know, in public places, shower our daughter with kisses, right? Uh, and then do this in a very non-apologetic way. Mm -hmm. And I remember that sometimes uh, we would get curious stares, and this is uh, in the U.S., by the way, in the American setting. Uh, and other times, almost a judgmental stare, right, in a way that made me realize that the expression of Zhang, um, that's what I would call this uh, behavior, was something that perhaps was especially strong, right, in our socialization, but not as strong, perhaps, for the average American experience, at least the way that you show affection in public, there was a boundary in the American setting that was perhaps not as clear in our setting, right? And so um, I also remember our toddler growing up and playing with her toys, including her dolls, and then showing similar kind of affection when she would uh, have these make-believe plays, right? Where I could clearly see that even at an early age, there was some kind of a learning that was taking place. Uh, in this case, learning of the cultural construct of Zhang. Um, so when you think about things like, you know, display of affection, but also co-sleeping, um, mm -hmm. David, that's something that in the Western context, people 
frown upon that, mm-hmm. right? And they uh, doctors recommend against that. But in the Korean context, for example, co-sleeping is more common, right? And I would argue that's yet another example of chung as a sort of a behavioral aspect. Um, you, you also asked about stereotyping and generalizing, and mm-hmm. I definitely agree as a cross-cultural psychologist, it's really important to keep in mind that on one hand, yes, there is shared elements uh, among a group of people when it comes to these cultural constructs. Um, But psychologists and social scientists are working with averages, right? They're working with averages. And so there's always going to be exceptions. And so it's important that when we talk to individuals, that we maintain that balance between knowing when to generalize and then knowing when to individualize. And that's, as you know, not sort of a perfect uh, art, right? That that mm-hmm. there's a, yeah, it, it's sort of a balancing that you have to do when it comes to these cross-cultural interactions where you don't want to ignore culture, right? But on the other hand, you also don't want to stereotype. You've blown my mind in five minutes already, Paul, because I'm, a, I'm often a little bit... Um, it, academically skeptical about things such as Han and Jong, but the way there that you describe Jong and in certain behavioral manifestations that are passed down from sort of parent to child, and then these will be acted out as behaviors. And these might be in the display of affection, and this might be showering with kisses or tapping on the bottom, I, I find is very common here in South Korea, that kind of, that, that gundi patting. Um, also the co-sleeping, I see that all the time. And, you know, just one incident by itself, one of those things by themselves might be seen as how they do that differently here and and, and we don't. And it becomes a topic of conversation. But putting them all together and saying, well, when you add all of these up, then that's where you can start seeing this element of Jong. Maybe it's not in one particular thing, but it's in a uh, accumulation of these behaviors in which people are are drawn to each other because I completely recognize and see all of those things. The, the two things at least that you've mentioned, and I can immediately think of more. So they're not, just to, just to finish this idea and perhaps you'll come back on it, they're not abstract cultural uh, concepts that can be used in, in literature and uh, in media, you know, people analyze Squid Game through the concept of Han and Jong and, and things like this, but rather they're specific behavioral patterns that are passed down through generations, yeah? I think that's a great summary, David. And um, I will also, again, be quick to state that I'm approaching this as a psychologist, right? Mm-hmm. As someone who is Uh, in some sense, trained as a behaviorist. And so I like practical things such as being able to measure Chung, right? How do we assess for Chung? How do we assess for Han? But I also readily recognize that there are other disciplines, Mm. other academic disciplines that you've already mentioned that tackle the idea of Han and Chung from a very different perspective. And I continue to learn from those perspectives, but that's sort of, that's not my go-to, right? As someone who is trained as a psychologist. So that makes perfect sense. So this idea of of behavior, um, before we perhaps look at something such as Han and and Chemyun, could you perhaps unpack some more of this behavior in terms of cross-cultural? So you've given two examples of perhaps how Korean behavior differs from 
Western behavior or other parts. Can you think of any other instances? And I know I'm putting you on the spot, so I'll just talk a little bit longer so you can get some in your brain. But um, I, I'm trying to think of some myself now. The, the, the covering of mouths when smiling, when I play football or soccer with people, if I fall over, again, they're like slapping you on the bum to pick you up. And there are many, but how does behavior differ uh, among Korean people as a, as a cultural thing, Paul? Um, that's a great example. So I was, as you were talking, thinking about an example that maybe I'll come back to later at a deeper level or at least at a greater detail. But in Korea, at least compared to the United States, and I imagine maybe in uh, other parts of um, the world, um, splitting the bill is not as common, right? So in Korea, you'll notice that when people go out to eat together, that I mean, I think this generation, maybe things are changing, right? But uh, still, compared to the U.S. setting, I noticed that uh, it's not as common of a behavior to split the bill. Rather, uh, one person pays, right? And mm -hmm. we can think about the pros and cons of that. But I think definitely we can connect that to Han, or I'm sorry, to uh, Chang in a way that says, um there is a level of generosity that's extended to the group that you're eating with, right? And in some sense, it takes away from the Zhang experience if everyone sort of pitches in to pay for the meal, right? And so that's an example that came to mind. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And it sometimes reinforces the age and the hierarchy and yeah. who is going to pay. And one of the things I noticed is that in the United Kingdom, where I'm from, if it's your birthday, you don't have to put your hand in your pocket. You know, you're, 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 people are treating you all night in Korea. It's your birthday. You have to pay. That's like, right. It's, it, it's fascinating the differences and how, but also I, I think how they're changing over time because one of the conversations I often have with my young undergrads here in Seoul and with the international students that are coming in is how things such as individualism are entering South Korean society, how it's so much more individualistic than it was 10 years ago even, because mm -hmm. 10 years ago, honbap, the idea of eating alone, mm -hmm. there wasn't even a word for it. It was this new thing. And you have television programs now like uh, Nan San or I live alone and it's this new culture coming up. And I often ask myself, well, you know, where does it come from? Cause it's not as if it comes down from the sky, like, Whoa. but actually it comes through behavior being communicated and then repeated. Yeah. And that's how culture is changing through behavior. Is that how you see it going over time? Uh, definitely. So uh, behaviors or actions one engages in, um, I think you're absolutely right that um, sort of the stereotype of Korea being collectivistic, right? That blanket statement is um, maybe not an not an accurate way to describe Korea anymore. Meaning, mm -hmm. yes, I think there are certain aspects of collectivism that still exist in Korea, namely sort of this hierarchical culture or in psychology, sometimes we refer to that as vertical collectivism. Um, but that horizontal collectivism, what you mentioned in terms of that bond with people who are next to you, right, the sense of being a good neighbor, I think that when I compare it to the US, it seems very similar or maybe even more individualistic in Korea. So for example, 
like in an apartment complex, it's not uncommon to not even know who lives next to you, right, in the apartment complex in a way that I think that's a great illustration. And then I think maybe in some sense, a sad illustration of uh, horizontal collectivism being low, right, that you're not feeling really connected to people who are around you. And you, you're so right to say about this hyper individualism that exists in modern South Korea now, because if you if you read textbooks, it's all collectivist and there, there is still a sense of that worry and that lack of pronouns. And if you ask a group of people, what do you think they'll say? Well, in our group, <laughs> there's this immediate retreat sometimes for safety, I think, so as not to mm-hmm. stand out or to be highlighted because that can be seen as dangerous here or, or something undesirable. But there is also at the same time, this hyper individualization or individualism where people want this untacked society, which means they don't come into contact. They order things through kiosks, they order online and that, communication or interaction has just whoom, disappeared. I wonder if this is, before we perhaps get onto Han, how you might see behavior differing between maybe your generation and the generation above you, or, or perhaps the young students generation below you. So in terms of behavior, do you notice a difference between say, your parents generation or or those above you and yours how the behavior is different because i would just to play this out one more time i would always think of it in terms of values are these people have more individualistic values or they have more sympathy towards gender issues mental health but now all of a sudden i'm thinking of it in terms of behavior pool and you've blown my mind with this so how does behavior differ across generations yeah i um that's a great question. And as you noted, behavior also in, reinforces values, right? So the it's a dynamic process where values impact behaviors, but also how you act changes things internally. And I think, um, you know, just to give you a little bit of my background, I've lived in Korea until I was 10. And then I moved out of the country, out of Korea since then. So I've lived abroad after the age of 10, but have traveled to Korea frequently. Mm. The longest I've lived in Korea after 10 is about four months when I spent one semester at Seogang University as a visiting scholar. Um, and for me, the observations are obviously not from a long-term stay in Korea, but these short-term visits. I do notice that because Korea has more resources, mm. again, that translates to more individualistic behaviors, right? Where um, you know, sort of the basic principle that the more resources one has, the less they have to depend on others, right? And so uh, when you have your smartphone, right, that's a big resource that you could sort of bury yourself into. Or uh, like you mentioned, humbap, right? When you're able to uh, afford to pay for a meal uh, for your for yourself and, and not have to share that resource, right, you can do that. Uh, and, and eat alone at a restaurant, right? And so definitely, I think the behaviors that I notice are reflecting sort of the increased resources that are part of the Korean context. Mm, yeah, so there is a symbiotic relationship, not only between you know, values and behavior, but also material 
well-being or goods in society because South Korea has built all that up, which it previously didn't had. And so maybe the difference is between the, the, the older generation will always lament the absence of Jong amongst the youngsters and not giving up seats on the subway and pretending, pretending to be asleep when somebody comes on. <laughs> um, and, and that might be as much a change of behavior, as much a change of values, but also uh, a, a change in material conditions which then affects those so there's 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 already three parts working together in there isn't it that affects our what we do and affects our culture that's right yeah so how does so so we looked at jong and i, I i've now see it completely differently how does han working this we we didn't explain jong what it was as a definition just before we go to han do you have a definition of jong or i'll try i think jong is a strong sense of connection to your loved one or to mm. your loved ones so it doesn't have to be of course a romantic relationship often it's not right. um, it's a deep bond or interpersonal bond that you have with someone else whether it's a friend whether it's a child and I think the most powerful example of Jung, of course, is between the mother and the child, right? That the mother caring for her child is, I would say, the most salient example of what Jung looks like. Yeah, that's that's great. And coming from the West, this idea when the mother gets home from the hospital, puts the kid up in the room and puts one of those speakers next to it and leaves them alone. Yeah. This is adults time. And I, I'm currently reading Crying in H Mart and, and fascinated oh. by his amazing book. And uh, it's a good book. Yeah, I've finished half of it in a day. It's, uh, but mm -hmm. it seems to be dealing with that relationship that you're talking about. So that's mm -hmm. Tom. And then Han, Paul, is another concept mm -hmm. that you explore in your work. Could you perhaps give us a definition before you give us behavior I, that i might suggest that way this time yeah again i'll try i think the as as you might guess the challenging thing about defining chong and chemian and han hmm. there are perhaps no equivalent terms in the english language right that um there's not an exact term so i'll try to approximate the terminology Han, I think, can be understood in a couple of different ways. One is like a deeply rooted collective trauma, right? And I think I watched a little bit of the Dr. Min Suk Kang's podcast, and mm. I think he would agree about the collective trauma part of this, that it reflects not individuals' traumatic experience, but a shared traumatic experience. And, and in our context, that's Korean people sharing that traumatic experience. Um, I've also seen it described as a deep angst, right? Something that is just so frustrating to the point where you can feel it in your stomach. Mm. Um, I think those are a couple of different uh, ways that we can understand Han. Um, let me also say that as a psychologist, I also think about Han as sort of individual experience or trauma. So in psychology, there's a um, disorder that's unique to Korea called uh, Hwabyeong. Mm. David, I'm not sure if you've heard of Hwabyeong, but I'm guessing yeah. you have. And it's, it literally translates to anger syndrome. Mm. And um, in psychology, we refer to something like Hwabyeong as a culturally bound syndrome. 
So it's not something that is diagnosed in the US, for example, right? It's diagnosed as something that is unique to the Korean setting. Mm -hmm. Hwabyeong looks a lot like an anxiety disorder, but also there are some distinctive aspects of Hwabyeong, including uh, lots of somatic symptoms. So like complaining about headaches, stomach aches when there are no biological causes. And what's unique or what's interesting to study about Hwabyeong is that it disproportionately affects middle-aged women, not exclusively, but more middle-aged women are vulnerable to something like Hwabyeong. And from a social cultural perspective, people theorize that it's the uh, the oppression and marginalization of women in a patriarchal society that could be repressed, repressed, and then it spills over into symptoms of Hwabyeong. And so even there, when we think about Hwabyeong, which is diagnosed at the individual level, um, we can also understand it as sort of an expression of Han, right? That Hwabyeong reflects the Han that has been internalized by the individual. It's very different from the, it's fascinating to listen to, um, it, Paul, it's very different from the, the sadness and beauty in the way that it's sometimes described in literature when Han manifests in, in, in those mediums and in those forms, it sometimes carries with it uh, a poetic or an aesthetic with it, which is almost desired, but the way you describe it with correlations or connections to the Hwabyeong, uh, the anxiety, this this feeling, I believe the the gentleman that burnt down Namdemun uh, about 10 mm. or so years ago, he, that was attributed to Hwabyeong uh, mm. in various things. Yeah? Um, just before we look at some maybe some manifestations of Han or some behavioral uh, outputs of Han, there's this there was this question that I was going to ask and all of a sudden it went because I was starting to think of, I was starting to picture uh, Namdamun in my head. This was the question. Is there such thing as intergenerational trauma? Now I know I'm suddenly putting you on the spot, but the, just the, what you've been talking about. So many of my young students these days are fascinated and they, they kind of re reference this work a lot or this idea of intergenerational trauma. And so I'm as empathetic as I can be and I try to listen and open and, and be with them. And then sometimes I feel like, are you just trying to have something to, to suffer about because you've got affluent, you, you didn't go through colonialism, you didn't go through the civil war, you have your own problems, but I'm not saying that very sympathetically, but I should have done. But you understand where I'm coming from. Is In your personal professional opinion, this idea of intergenerational trauma, does that work? Does that manifest in behavior? Does, is that real? Um, I would argue so. Um, and so uh, another aspect of Han is being able to look in the mirror, right? And to truly grapple with the past. And What's, uh, as you noted, unique about Han as a collective trauma is that you don't have to have experienced it to see its manifestation, right? So whether it's your students talking about the colonial period and then how that impacts them currently, right? And, you know, my, my American students, they're always amazed when they, like one time they went to a bar and they saw, they, they happened to walk in during a Korea-Japan soccer game. And they noticed the, another level of energy when it came to cheering for the Korean team. And we were able to process how 
Yeah, that's yet another manifestation of collective trauma where the people in the room, all people that didn't go through the colonial period, still have internalized this trauma that was passed down from one generation to another. And so um, I would argue, yes, intergenerational trauma is something that's learned and passed down from you know, your parents' generation, your grandparents' generation, um, and, and manifest in these behaviors. Is this behavior passed down consciously, subconsciously? Is it passed down top down from government and media or bottom up through stories at the kitchen table? You, you might say all of them, but when this, this behavior, these manifestations of these values, which comes out in behavior, and it and it lasts for a century or more, perhaps, right? So, the, so it's it's not, not to be sniffed at because it's longevity is what makes something real, I think, rather than whether it's true or false. If something lasts, uh, it's evolutionary in that sense. Now, is it done or does it matter whether these behaviors are passed down, such as Han, such as Tong, whether they're passed down consciously or they're passed down subconsciously, whether they're passed down in state directives top down or whether they just come bottom up grassroots. Do you get an idea of how that's playing out in Korea? Is it omnidirectional or? It's a great question. It seems to me that it is omnidirectional. I'm also thinking that as a behaviorist that meaningful change, right? Meaningful influence uh, might occur from bottom up, right? So uh, from stories that are told, for example, by the, um, the grandparents who uh, were comfort women during the colonial period, right? And how those stories are so powerful that um, you understand the level of trauma experienced by people of this country. Um, I don't know if the Wednesday demonstrations are still happening in front of the Japanese embassy, but when I read about that and, and see or walk by the Japanese embassy and see the multiple generations that are represented in those protests, I think that's another illustration of how through these stories that are told, right, young people are recognizing the need for activism, for speaking up, and for not forgetting these stories that are being told. So I think it's most powerful from bottom up, but certainly there are roles that the government plays in this as well, for better or for worse. Mm, yeah, sometimes these things can become overly politicized and, and it detracts from the genuine emotion, activism, suffering, communication that can and I guess should uh, take place. Are there any manifest we've spoken a lot about this kind of intergenerational in terms of behavior of han and how you see it are there are there any that we have missed and are there any that are unrelated to japan there'd probably be many but do we see han again with the the heartbreaking tragedy of ito on uh over halloween or does 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 han and its behavioral manifestations still resonate today in 2022 and how does it come about elsewhere right so certainly the japanese colonial period is a example that comes up a lot in the conversation about han along with the uh, korean war and the fact that this 
country was divided and also still technically at war, right? And so sometimes the idea of Han is also talked about as siblings being separated and how that trauma is internalized. And I think that certainly represents uh, what's going on in the Korean Peninsula. Um, and like you mentioned, it doesn't have to be something that's external, like uh, Japan or the Korean War, right? But rather uh, something like the Itaewon tragedy, uh, especially in thinking about history repeating itself and how, you know, after after the Sewol Ferry tragedy, right, to have mm. so many young people die yet again was heartbreaking. And it's certainly a collective trauma, right, for the entire nation of Korea. Mm. And so, um, no, it doesn't have to be something external or something that has happened a long time ago, but rather something uh, as recent as the Itaewon tragedy, certainly can be described as Han. Um, I would also argue, David, that sometimes Han doesn't have to be a big traumatic experience, but rather sort of this cumulative effect of small things, right? So um, it's the day-to-day -day experience of a stressor that could build up in a way that it becomes a source of Han and can manifest in something like Hwabyeong. So I guess I'll share sort of vulnerably a personal example, if that's okay. Um, I think I shared with you in an earlier email that I'm here in Korea for uh, some time because my mother is in a coma. And I think that, um, and this is, by the way, no fault, fault of anyone, right? But because of COVID um, restrictions, visits are severely limited. And so I think being able to sort of, well, not being able to visit, right? And also uh, at the same time, uh, dealing with all of the other aspects of an illness like this has been a daily grind, right? And so to um, have this build up, you could even argue that that can reflect uh, sort of a Han-like experience, right? So it doesn't have to be something that is significantly a singly uh, traumatic event, but rather something that cumulatively builds up over time. And um, I, I really wish you and your family well during this troubled time, Paul. Uh, uh, my thoughts and prayers go to you genuinely uh, with that. Thank you. Does Han, I, I, I'm stepping very delicately here just because of the subjects we've covered, but does what we've described, does that correlate or, or causation in terms of the mental health levels of the country, in terms of the suicide rate being the leading cause of death for young people, according to the stress, um, you know, because they're well documented. And we can look at South Korea in terms of happiness, mental health, stress, uh, suicide. South Korea rarely does things down the middle. They're right for either end of a graph. <laughs> That's where they seem to exist. Um, and yet, is is there a connection between what we're talking about here, these accumulations, these internal, these externals, these these feelings, and them playing out in these statistical realities that we seem to see? I think that's a very important question. And I think we can make sense of things from a Han perspective. Um, but on the other hand, um, 
I also like to maybe speak the language that the people can more readily understand. So for example, when we say mm. that excessive parental pressure can contribute to poor mental health, underlying that excessive parental pressure, we could talk about cultural constructs like Han, that young students in Korea, they don't have a life outside of school, right? And that cumulative effect of young people not sleeping well, not eating well, and being in the school setting 24-7, right? I'm, I'm exaggerating here, of course, right? But uh, just that type of extreme academic pressure will eventually uh, could be correlated with things like poor mental health outcomes, right? Or we can talk about technology, right? And how uh, smartphone addictions and um, other related technological concerns might also contribute to decreased well-being. And so um, I think those are sort of the terms that I prefer to sort of speak about, right? Rather than sort of taking a step back and talking about Han, but I, certainly I make sense of it, mm. um, sense of that kind of research from Han perspective, right? That it becomes sort of an internalized trauma that leads to poor well-being. Because you are so eloquent at describing these things and so flexible with your thoughts, there are two words that I've heard during the past week all across university campuses at Hanyang and Seoul Women's University. It, it, those two words are not necessarily Han, Jong or Taemyeon, which we have in our notes here in which you've done uh, extensive academic work on. Nevertheless, perhaps we might see if we can unpack a little bit. One you'll definitely know, which is Nunchi. Hmm. Now, this is spoken about by all of the students. And when we're addressing certain issues, this word comes out. And sometimes the international students are, right, sorry, what's nunchi? There's, there's been books written about it. It's the, it's the secret to happiness. And it's also the cause of the greatest suffering. It's, it's something. The other word that I'm going to give to you for us to explore is katseng. Now, this was uh, like God life. Hmm. This was recently uh, voted, I believe, the word of the year in Korea. Mm. So in the wow. West, we, we had goblin mode and goblin mode was just engaging in your inner, uh, like slovenly behavior and pajamas mm. and things like that. But Gadseng or the God life um, is just absolutely waking up at 4.30 and doing exercise and then having a fruit smoothie and then doing your homework and then going to school and going to Hagwon. That that word like God, Gadseng, mm. All, all the young 20 year olds are using it in my campus. And these are fascinating to me how this generation have their own words. But perhaps Nunti, are you familiar in any way with Nunti? Can we? I am. Because it's, it's, it's a very slippery term, Paul Nunti. It is, yeah. And thank you for enlightening me about the term Katsang. Now I'm really fascinated by that terminology. Um, and thank you for explaining. Uh, so, well, David, uh, what that means. But nunchi, I'm definitely familiar with. It's literally to measure with one's eyes, right? But it's mm -hmm. the idea that in Korean society, nunchi, again, becomes a skill that if you don't have it, in the extreme case, you might be socially ostracized because of it, right? That literally, nunchi opta, meaning mm -hmm. that person doesn't have nunchi, becomes a description that might be attached to a person. So, it's a social skill that's elevated at a very high level in Korea. And I think um, 
along with Nunchi, then we can think about sort of the importance of high context communication, right? That um, even without a word being said, right? That you pick up on what is needed in the room, what the oftentimes the superior might be looking for, what your parents might desire. And so, yeah, I think Nunchi is one of those social skills in Korea that is super, super important. This I absolutely this idea of a high context uh, communication or high context culture, uh, which is sometimes described in which a lot of the communication is taking place non verbally. <laughs> and I, I guess different people navigate it differently and they might be used to it, they might adapt to it quickly. But in South here in South Korea, it's my experience that you need to pay attention to the room very hard and get what's going on and nobody's saying anything but everybody's saying everything and students will sometimes come in into my office at the university and sit down and they'll sit down hi uh, and they won't say anything mm. and it's almost my job as the professor to get out why they're here what's up they need help with something they, they, they want sangdam or they've missed mm. a couple do you see what i mean but they won't yeah. actually say it because to them it feels like they're um burdening a superior mm. i'm not calling myself a superior they're burdening somebody above them with their problems which they shouldn't and it's my job yeah. to actually get it from them mm -hmm. yeah and again it's intertwined with this sense of respect for authority right that you're viewed as an authority figure and so they'll defer to you to take the conversation somewhere but they have in their mind the direction that they would like the conversation to go, right? Because they're there for a reason, but yeah. they're sort of deferring to you to um, maybe take the lead in that conversation. Um, as you were talking, I was thinking about another example of nunchi that I see when I um, go out to eat with Korean colleagues, especially like if there are different ranks within the department. Mm what the seating arrangement looks like. Like I made the mistake of just popping down as soon as possible when there was an opening. But then I realized people just stand around and they kind of look around and they determine where they sit based on where the most senior person sits, right? And there might even be another person sort of directing you to where you should be sitting. So I've had some awkward moments where I've sat down and then I've gotten up so that the repositioning could take place. Absolutely. And I've I've been so used to waiting until I'm directed somewhere because it's also a little bit different if you're the foreigner, you know, sometimes mm. you might be low in rank, but pushed up to sit next to someone because you are a, a ah. foreigner. But I got so used to that, Paul, that mm. I forget that I'm old now. And sometimes I'm the senior person, I'm the professor mm. or something like that, that I actually have to sit down first. And if I don't, everybody just kind of mills around and and, and does nothing. You're like, what's, oh yes. And so <clears throat> Nunchi is reading the room and acting like that. And I guess, you know, when we talked about Hua Byung and we talked about Han, we talked about these things that are internal and that can build up over time. If a lot of the communication is taking place non-verbally and if you're not expressing those things and if you're not able to sometimes communicate in a certain way with people i can understand how that could build up there might be also mm -hmm. linguistic connotations can we quickly talk about power distance or rank or hierarchy because you just mentioned this and 
you and I, we, we, we don't really, you know, I, I saw your work online, was fascinated by it. So I reached out to you and we're able to call each other Paul and David. I've, I've no idea how old you are. And it's, it's, it's on a level. Mm. If this was in Korean, this would be completely different. We would probably mm. need to ascertain something, wouldn't we? And I, I struggle to communicate sometimes to my international students how that while I'm here in South Korea interacting in Korean with Korean mm. people, that I can't say the names of people two, three years older than me. I can't pick up, I, I literally can't. They would have to be a title. Uh, if mm. I were to say their name, they would look at me as if I'm starting a fight. And, mm. you know, um, I can't pick up my cutlery before they would. Can you perhaps just give some insight from a behavioral psychologist uh, perspective on how that hierarchy, that power distance works? Because it's so different, not better or worse, but so different from other cultures, isn't it? Absolutely. And when you look at the averages, Korea tends to rank really high in emphasizing power distance. And surpri not surprisingly, U.S. is much lower right, in emphasizing power distance. That's why, as you noted, um, in the U.S., students can sometimes call me by my first name, especially graduate, graduate students, right? And I think, um, yeah, and so uh, in Korea, I think a sort of a benefit versus a downside of power distance we can think of about might be sort of a benefit would be uh, showing respect for other people, right? Mm -hmm. And maintaining social harmony, um, deferring to those who are more experienced than you. But of course the downside is sometimes communication can become really inefficient, right? Where like a direct low context communication might've taken care of something, but sort of the indirect, full of nunchi kind of a statement could take much longer, right, to, to mm. be accurately conveyed. And so that's definitely a downside of something like Korea or, or somewhere like Korea where there's great power distance. Yeah, mm. yeah. And, and that's a reality. That's not just something in books. That power distance is is real. And I, I, I feel it all day, every day. And the most interesting thing about it for me, Paul, is that it's so flexible that I'll, I'll be in one room and I'll be like number seven. And you have to understand what number you are yeah. uh, in, in that room through nunchi, through not speaking, but okay, I'm number seven. So I just sit here and shut up and just nod and yeah. And then I walk into the next room and I'm number one or two and my whole demeanor and behavior has to change. And hmm. it's, it, it's really always, you're working out where in the hierarchy you are. And, and if you don't do it, check this out for a segue. If you don't do it, then Chemyun becomes involved. So I've uh, I've taken great I've segue. Ta yeah, <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a natural, obviously, but yeah. I've taken you through these terms you weren't expecting to speak about, but you have done work on Chemyun. So just while I have you here, uh, would you perhaps give us a first, maybe again a definition because some people might not even understand how we're pronouncing or saying this word, and then how it does manifest, Paul. Yeah. So Chemyun. Um... One way to understand it would be the cultural value and the related practice of avoiding shame, avoiding interpersonal shame. Mm -hmm. And both shame on the part of the, like if you and I were interacting, both uh, avoiding shame uh, for you, but also on my part, if I'm saying something, right? So it's both the deliverer and the person receiving the communication that you're keeping in mind, okay, 
the other person has to be yeah I have to not shame the other person and also I have to avoid shame right and so I, I I talked about paying for meals but when I was growing up my family whenever we went out to eat with another family my father typically my father would fight the other father uh for the bill right it fight in quotes right and yeah. as a young child I hated that that was a very I don't know. It was a very cringeworthy kind of a moment for me. But looking back, I realized in some sense, this very elaborate cultural dance was in some sense maintaining and keeping in mind chemyeon, right? That I'm guessing that they probably knew who was going to end up paying eventually, typically the older person or the person that owed a favor or maybe last time another family pays so this time our family pays mm. but they still have to go through this this dance where they insist that they're paying and the person that doesn't pay then is saved from the shame of not paying at least they tried fighting for it right and of course the person that does pay gains some respect so Avoiding shame, I think, is a big, uh, an important way to think about chemian. But of course, there's a positive side to this too, where you're not only trying to avoid something, but also trying to gain something, right? So chemian is also about that social uh, status, right? That you're trying to gain. You're, you're, you're basically um, wanting honor to your family, right? So we talked about the example of Korean parents, the stereotypical Korean parents who are really obsessed with their children's academic achievement, right? And when we think about that from a cultural construct perspective, we can think of it as the heavy emphasis placed on chemian, right? That mm. you are expected to bring honor to your family through vocational and academic achievement. And to not do so would, of course, then mean bringing shame to the family. And so I think that's sort of how I understand chemian. Mm, it's i can see those fights that you described by the way those performative dances where it's it, it's almost like a mating ritual i don't mean it in that sense but that's the first thing i can think of when you watch a, a wildlife documentary and, and there's this elaborate dance going on it and uh it happens so much because if if it were to play out like somebody said to you uh I'll pay the bill. And you just went, thank you. All right, nice. <laughs> no, 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 that's not the way you're meant to do it. Uh, sometimes there is the behavior where you'll go out to the bathroom, uh, mm. to the toilet, and then you'll pay while you're out there and you mm. avoid it. That's become one of the ways, I believe, of uh, avoiding all of yeah. that taking place. With the, the, the parents and education, one of the things that fascinated me, and the children do study um, in order to not bring shame. And the parents, or particularly the women, they would be known or referred to by the names of their children. So mm. instead of being, for example, I don't know, Kim Eun-young as a woman, you'd be called dong hyun mm. You would be called the mother of dong -hyun, not even having your own identity, but living for this younger person to then grow up. So as a young child, it's not only the academic pressure, but it's also, you know, there's, there's this whole thing going on. One of my early professors told me, uh, David, to lose face or chemion, to break your chemion, to lose face in Korean society is terrible, but mm. to make somebody else lose face is unforgivable. Mm. And I, when I heard that, I was like, oh, <laughs> wow, <laughs> this, is, this is very difficult. 
Paul, I'm conscious of time. Uh, how easy or hard is it for non-Korean people to understand or feel these cultural concepts? Can they ever truly get them? And when I wrote down this question, um, I was thinking of them as portrayed as some innate quality. Like I wasn't sure where this conversation was going. And so now I, I, I kind of have a different take already, but I want to hear yours. But some people might be listening to this going, oh, wow, there's this thing called Taemyeon, there's this thing called Han and Nunti and Jong. And it, it will sound so uh, foreign. And that's the idea mm. of it, I guess. <laughs> but can, can non-Korean people, how close can they get to these concepts then? Yeah. And I would say, David, that even for Koreans, especially the young generation of Koreans, these are difficult concepts to understand. Like if you were to ask a typical student to describe or define these terms, they might be able to give some examples, but definitions might be really hard. Um, I would also argue that as a psychologist, that um, value and behavioral, let's say, acculturation they take place at a different rate, meaning value acculturation, as you might guess, is slower compared to behavioral acculturation. So you can act a certain way, right? You can show jung, right? Or you can keep in mind chemyeon or nunchi uh, and, and act accordingly, but your opinion about them or your internal sort of processing about whether those are actually important might take some time to change. Doesn't mean that it doesn't happen, right? Mm -hmm. But it might be slower compared to your behavioral change or behavioral acculturation. So it's kind of a silly example, but when my students came to um, Korea, so it's for a study abroad program, um, they quickly got used to being in a crowded subway, right? That they were, like initially they were getting into the subway with like, you know, six feet distance between people. This is pre-COVID, right? And I was like, no, don't do that because you'll miss the subway if you try to keep a distance between the person in front of you and yourself. So eventually they got used to being really close with another person where mm. like your private space and public space are pretty blurred, right? But their value of privacy and importance of private space never changed, right? Where... Uh, during their one month stay, they were able to behaviorally adapt, but their internal processing of personal space never changed. So I would say that similarly with Han, Jung, and Chemyeon, you can acquire some behaviors that reflect those values, but the value change might take a little bit longer. I love that. I love those terms and it makes so much sense. And I, I've heard of things like cultural lag before, like mm -hmm. a, a society on a whole can change its uh, institutions and organizations, but culture will always lag. But to put that into personal, into the into the individual and use those terms, wow, it makes so sense. But I've never, I'd never heard it described like that. Just to stay on there for one more question. Sometimes in South Korea, I've understood it in that the value is in the behavior itself. So in Confucianism, the idea of yeah, and how you perform an action. So you take things with two hands and you give something in a certain way and you bow and it's the physical manifestation of the action that determines the uh, emotion rather than any internal 
feeling i i've heard that described in confucianism or in south korean society that it's the ritual that even if you're like god damn it i don't want to do you still it's how you do it that conveys is does that do you have any take on that and how that might work with value acculturation or behavioral acculturation or differences across uh, the korean and american cultures yeah i think you're making an important point that psychological literature backs up which is in the setting like the us for example the consistency between value and behavior is important right so in other words in an individualistic framework people seek that consistency between how you feel inside and how you behave not as strong in a interdependent context and for example like south korea where rituals might be valued where you might not feel like bowing to your professor right but you do it anyway because that's part of the cultural norm and um that discrepancy between what you do and how you feel inside might not be as critical in a interdependent framework like ours wow yes 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 it makes so much sense to me um conscious of the time limit we have for you here i'll bring us towards these last couple of questions paul um I'm, and david i'm okay going yeah going some few minutes over so yeah. please don't feel like you need to rush i'm enjoying myself in this conversation yeah. good 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 i i still want to honor our agreements and and keep mm. there but there's, there's a couple left the first one is do you have any advice for young people today? Now, already just in this short period of time, I feel like I've learned something from you, but many things, but young people today grow up in an environment that's very different from perhaps where we grew up and they might be growing up in different environments, not only all around the world, but also inside one country. Um, if you were gonna speak to a 20 year old uh, Paul growing up in 2022 or, or to anyone, what advice do you think young people today need to hear or, or, or should be listening to? I think one advice that I would give them or give myself if I were a young person in 2022 would be to listen to other people's stories and be intentional in listening to other people's stories. I think in this day and age, we are so obsessed with telling our own stories through social media posts, through TikTok videos or Twitter uh, posts. But um, you know, what would it look like for us to pause our storytelling and instead pay attention to other people who have rich narratives to tell about their experiences. And especially those people that have experienced, you know, Han, collective trauma, people who have experienced marginalization, people who have maybe uh, had drastically different set of experiences from what you have experienced. Uh, find intentional ways to listen to those stories and, uh, I believe that then empathy will grow, right? That empathy is not something that is stagnant, but can be grown in a person. And one way to do that is to listen to other people's stories. So develop your listening skills and pay attention to the stories of others, such as listening to your podcast, for example, David, right? There are many people who have told their stories. Mm. Uh, many and I spend a lot of my time talking and so one of the reasons I did this was so I could listen to people how one more question on this then Paul how does one listen there's a great line in the Quentin Tarantino movie uh, Pulp Fiction where mm -hmm. Uma Thurman asked John Travolta do you wait to do you wait to talk or do you listen 
John Travolta replies, I wait to talk, but I'm trying to listen. And I, I, I felt that because there are times where you're waiting to interject with, I've done that too. I've been there too. Do you have any idea on how we can listen or how we listen better? Yeah, and I've done that too. And as professors, I think that's sort of our occupational hazard too, right? Where we're listening to story or listening to students, but then we're also formulating a response in our minds, right? And I think as someone who's also trained as a counseling psychologist, I would say that one, it's important to recognize those urges, right? Those urges to, uh, for example, impose our own agenda, right? And to resist those urges by perhaps slowing down the conversation. So if, you, if you're talking about, for example, like a conversation with a friend, right? Instead of um, maybe um, imposing what I want to say, right? Slowing down the conversation by paraphrasing what the other person says, right? And really trying to make sure that you are understanding correctly what the other person is trying to convey. And it feels very unnatural, right? Because it's this is not how we're typically socialized to talk, right? But I think I would also argue that the fact that it's unnatural is maybe saying that we need to do it more, right? We're able to mirror or validate the other person and not have to um, argue or debate them. I think there's, a, of course, a time and place for a debate, right? But I think we we do that a lot already, right? And we don't do enough of validating and empathizing with the experiences of others. And maybe if we do it enough, it might pass down as behavior to other people, if that's right. the idea. And that's the this takeaway that I'm getting from you today in, in this short time, which is fantastic. What I would like to ask of you now, Paul, is mm -hmm. to please leave a question about Korea for the next person on the podcast. Now, you don't know who it might be, who it will be, old, young, anything like but uh, it could be simple, deep, short or long. This is this new practice that I've decided mm -hmm. to introduce. But a question about Korea for the next person on the podcast, please. Yeah, I have a simple question, which is what are the what are Korea's biggest areas of strength and also growth as a nation? And of course, as a psychologist, I'm approaching this question from a sociocultural perspective. So thinking about um, Korean society, Korean culture, what are the biggest areas of growth and biggest areas of concern uh, or sorry, strength uh, for the nation? Excellent. Thank you. I will ask that to the next person. Okay. And now this this final question is the question that comes from my previous guest. Uh, my previous guest was Mr. Peter Bint. He's of a mm -hmm. mixed British and Korean heritage. His father is British. His mother is Korean. And he's currently on NBC every Sunday. He's, he's pretty wow. big in the media these mm -hmm. days. When we walked into the podcast studio, the people just looked at it. Wow. <laughs> and he didn't know that the guest would be you. And yet he asked this question. So there's something mm. very serendipitous in this, Paul. His yeah. question for you is this. If you had someone visiting from abroad to Korea mm. and you had 48 hours with them, they knew nothing about Korea. So they've come to Korea. They know mm. nothing about the country. You have 48 hours with them. On the first day, Paul, you have to show them the worst side of Korea possible. On the second day, you have to show them the best side of Korea possible. And so he's thinking about 
not talking about things, but you're going to take them somewhere. You're going to show them something. This is a a physical uh, thing. So it's not just talking about as we uh, as I've done a little bit statistics or things like that. But the first day, where do you take them if you want to show them the worst side possible? And on the second day, where do you take this person who will have not much context or understanding? Not even uh, where do you show them on the second day to show them the best side of Korea? Wow, that is a deep question, and I'm impressed with the question. Um, let me think about. For me, I think it's easy to come up with sort of the best side of Korea, um, not because it's something that necessarily shows Korea um, has done well, right? But it you just feel sort of the many emotions and thoughts associated with Korea, and that's I would take them to the DMZ, right? I would take them to the DMZ and have them just feel that energy, right? And that pain, that han, that is part of the DMZ. Um, the worst. So maybe the DMZ it, would yeah. be the best side, sorry. The DMZ would be the best side of Korea. That's, best that's fascinating the, to me, yeah. Best in the sense that uh, it would be something that you just, uh, in one day could feel some strong cultural constructs that are part of Korea. Um, and maybe that could also be simultaneously the worst side too, right? That that pain. I know that's kind of a cop-out response, but I can't really think of a worse side. David, I, I bring my students here and I try to really have them enjoy Korea. So I've never thought about like, what is the worst place in Korea that I can take them, right? But um, well, it's not maybe... the worst place, but the place where they would see uh, mm. the worst side of Korea. Yeah. Maybe, maybe like the... Uh, commute time subway train, right? Where not that people are behaving rudely, but just that how crowded it is during the subway rides in the morning and in the evening, right? I think that's a completely legitimate answer. And like I say, as as you, you bring people here and show them career. And that question came up without him knowing that it would be you. I, I, I thought it was, as he was asking it, I was thinking, wow, this is amazing. <laughs> like, really? Um, and I, I, I smiled when you said uh, that choosing the best place would be easy because I got that from you in this short conversation, the positivity, the, the vibes, it, it just exudes off you in, in your answers as well. And I think uh, I, I'm, I'm glad to have experienced it for this short time, but uh, Paul, thank you for, for teaching me some things. Thank you for uh, talking with me, listening to me and uh, sharing this conversation. It's been marvelous. Thank you so much, David. It's, it was a pleasure to talk to you and you made the experience really enjoyable and also easy. So thank you so much.